Leadership Confessions with Phil Rose from Clarity Leadership. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of Leadership Confessions with me, Phil Rose. I know a number of you really enjoyed our last podcast with Ben Osborne at Pfizer. And to date, all my guests have been corporate leaders of high profile brands, who frankly I've worked quite closely with over many years. Today is different. A high-profile leader, definitely, regularly featured in Sunday newspapers and, and often a guest on BBC Radio. And today, my Leadership Confessions guest is Hugh Osmond. In 1993, Hugh co-led the £18 million acquisition, a market listing of Pizza Express. In the eight years he remained on the board, he oversaw losses from half a million annually to turning profits of £38 million. In 1997, he co-founded Punch Group acquiring Allied Demek and Bass Inns to create the UK's largest pub group. It was floated in 2002, valued at £3.5 billion. Now, I know Hugh personally. During the summer months, along with some friends, we regularly swim in the River Thames together, followed by a Friday evening beer. And more recently, in the winter months, that's turned into an icy cold dip. But I thought Hugh would be a fabulous guest, as you can only describe him, frankly, as a serial entrepreneur, an investor with a track record across many sectors. So, Hugh, thanks for making the time to join us today. How are you, sir? I am very well indeed. So, I'm not missing the cold river at this particular point. <laughs> it has been particularly cold this year. Uh, look, what would be good, uh, and to, to give some of the listeners, you know, just a, a, an overview of your role, because I know it does span many different areas. Well, uh, in, in the past, I, I have obviously, or not obviously, Kind of been a genuine executive and actually uh, run things and been the person who does the day-to-day stuff. So I've been through the good times and bad in, in terms of yeah, genuinely being hands-on operationally. You know, right from very small businesses when I first started up to much larger ones. These days, uh, they try and keep me out of interfering in the day-to-day where they can. They don't always succeed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we have an, a, a number of different businesses that I, I invest in, obviously having been kind of lucky enough to make money from some of the ventures in the past. I now try and in, invest in businesses of various sizes, preferably doing something uh, interesting uh, and a little bit new. And uh, so I, I have a, a, a fairly hands-on role in, in some in that I get involved in bits that interest me. I, my first love is probably the hospitality business. And we have a, uh, a, a small quoted business now called Various Eateries. Obviously, it's not the best of times with um, COVID going round, uh, but uh, I do get involved in that. I like to see the new sites and help with the design and get involved in the menu and Obviously, the operators try and keep me out as much as possible, but I do get involved in that. And in other businesses, I'm more of a, a not a passive investor, but I'm kind of on call to the guy who's genuinely doing the hard work um, for advice. Or sometimes if I don't think he's doing it quite right, I'll give my advice anyway. Um, and, and so I have a kind of range of roles from being moderately hands-on to pretty much hands-off. And we have different businesses from restaurants to uh, a, a physio business where I think there's potential to actually try and have a high street branded physio business to an interest in house building businesses and various other things all, all the way up to biotech and um, you know more more technology orientated educational things and uh, some non-profit 
a non-profit venture, which is also close to my heart, which is um, a ski academy where we hope that Britain's youngsters, you know, will, well, youngsters today will, in a few years' time, actually be on podiums in, a, in an alpine sport that has traditionally been dominated by the alpine nations, the Swiss and the Austrians, Italians and French. So that's a, another venture, non-profit, that I'm involved with. Oh, well, I'd like to come back to that one uh, later. But if we just keep to the sort of hospitality part of your uh, one of the sectors that yeah, I know you're very prominent in. What, and I know you love that sector. What, what, what is it you love about the hospitality business? It's a da- dangerous to tell too many people because <laughs> you, <laughs> the thing about the hospitality business is that uh, it can earn you a decent living, and in doing so, it also tends to be tremendous fun. Now. I don't know. I, I suppose everybody who's got a successful business must get a lot of satisfaction out of it. But the hospitality industry is really remarkable in the the objective of what you're trying to do is to give people a good time. And essentially, you can say if you visit any one of your premises, whether it's a hotel, a nightclub, um, a bar or a restaurant, that if your customers are enjoying themselves, and having a good time and when you go into the room you can see lots of smiles and chat and laughing well you don't need to look at the PL or the bank balance to know that you are doing well and that you'll be making money and that's you know that's a fantastic thing because it means you can go to these places and you can basically say if i've got it right in terms of it being fun which means that when you go there you'll be enjoying yourself as well the money will be coming in and and your bank balance will be doing well as well. And I don't think there's that many businesses which are based pretty much 100% on whether people are enjoying themselves. And it's a mistake people make in hospitality. I think some people go into hospitality thinking it's about, you know, buying a, a beer for a pound and selling it for two pounds or whatever it is, or buying food in for a pound and selling it for two pounds and that that's your profit that's not what you're selling what you're selling is um people having a nice time socializing enjoying themselves and however good your food is or however good your drink is however cheap your beer is if people aren't enjoying themselves you, it's not working in hospitality what you're actually that's what you're you're, you're selling is a is a good time and that makes it a brilliant business you you you're you're enjoying yourself the customers are enjoying themselves and uh, it's a decent business at the same time. I don't think there's any other business quite like it. So, so what what I love about that is, you know, look, clearly you you are focused on 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 the bottom line, but also your purpose is loud and clear, which is about you know, uh, enabling people to have a, a great time. I, I guess you know what what led you to 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 that industry, and 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 I guess in terms of doing so. Uh, what leaders have you admired in in terms of um, as you've grown uh, over the years? And I can tell you that uh, we kind of kind of stumbled into the industry, and you know, going back into the distant past, as Noah emerged from his ark. <laughs> it started ironically in terms of you know my then partner and I having parties because we enjoyed having parties. We enjoyed going to parties, and then we had parties to go back. But we realized that if we had parties in our, our rooms or houses, you know, they tended to create rather a lot of mess and chaos. And so we, and the parties got bigger and, and, and maybe even wilder back in a long time ago, obviously. 
And so we kind of figured out that it would make sense to um, find venues to, to have parties. And we started, you know, talking to people who had restaurants and bars and we'd maybe... Uh, you know, rent the place for a while, and I, I think actually it, it kind of came about that somebody said, "Look, I tell you what, you know, we'll give you the place for free if, as long as you know, everybody who comes is kind of paying is paying for their drinks." And from that, and you know, that was brilliant fun because people turn up having a great time, and the venues cost you nothing, you're having a great party. And we moved on from that to deciding to kind of speculate our entire life savings and, and including university tuition fees grant the works for, for the year on doing it a little bit more formally and, and uh, kind of renting a, a, a club for a night and then advertising it and, and doing it as a kind of commercial venture. So we'd speculated everything. The club was due to open at uh, nine o'clock. obviously quite early. We weren't really expecting anyone to come at nine o'clock. Nobody goes to the club at nine o'clock. We put everything into it. We'd spent the money on the posters. We'd done some advertising. You know, we weren't going to eat basically for the rest of the year if it had not worked. And at about, you know, just after half past eight, the first couple of people started, you know, turning up and filtering out outside the club. The doors were obviously closed. And then about 22, there were more people. And by um, quarter two, there were kind of 30 or 40 people. And, you know, five to nine before we even opened the doors, there were like 100 people sort of queuing outside. And it was just, the best feeling in the world because you knew that they'd all turn up that and it was going to be a success and and it and the evening was fantastic it was brilliant it was great fun and you know uh, and and we were making money and i think that was it you know if if um if that hadn't worked you know that one night um probably would have ended up i don't know you know doing something different but it was such a buzz it was such a buzz. It was a buzz because of the money, but it was such a buzz that people came in and they wanted to come and they had this fantastic time. And there's the thing, you're thinking, geez, I'm having a giant party and I'm getting paid to do it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. how good is that, you know? And so, you know, that 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 was, um, that that led to a kind of love affair with hospitality that hasn't really, really ended. Um, but in, in terms of um, who to admire, about that same sort of time, uh, somehow we actually kind of blagged it. We phoned up. Um, Richard Branson and said, "Oh look, you know we admire you. Can we come and and, and interview you?" So, so in in those days uh, when uh, we just decided that business was more interesting and parting businesses in particular more interesting than medicine, he seemed that you know he was a real uh, beacon. You know he just had Virgin Records and clubs at the time. So at that time he was um, somebody really admired and and followed, and he he'd done a number of rather similar things to what we were trying to do um these days i don't know you know there's there's quite a range of people i think in strictly in business um i mean i, I have no idea really where the business will go but you've got to love elon musk because he's just he's just such a character and always determined to push the boundaries not only to the absolute limit but way beyond um, so uh, I have no idea if that's a real business, but you've got to admire the guy. He's fantastic. So, so how would you describe your leadership style? I, I think that's a difficult one. I've always been rather amazed that people kind of want to follow, if that's the right word, what I do. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, you know, what is the style? I think the style is that, 
I come up with a plan and I paint a nice picture and people seem to like the picture and they, they, they want to be part of that picture and hence they kind of follow on and hopefully keep liking the pictures and, and stick around. So my leadership style is to find people who add the skills that I don't so that as a team, if I'm coming up with, you know, perhaps more of the vision thing and the direction, I hate that word vision, but, you know, the vision thing, that I've got people equally who add those bits, you know, firstly, the more cynical say, well, you know, buggy your vision, where, where, what's the nuts and bolts? And the people that do the stuff, uh, you know, actually, and, you know, particularly, I always need somebody on board who is a good people manager. I've been lucky enough to get people to come on board with me and stay with me for a very long time. But I wouldn't say on a day-to-day basis, I'm a, I'm a people manager, so I always need that. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, Phil, but maybe it does somewhere in that waffle. Uh, well, you talked to, well, you, you know, and, and you, you said then you didn't like the word vision, but you just said about taking, you know, creating that picture and getting people to buy into the picture. In other people's terms, that would be creating the vision and getting people to buy into the vision. But then you also, at the beginning of it, talked about and that plan to get there. So you've clearly got that very consciously in your head. When you reflect on your journey and the multiple businesses that you've owned and run, what's been the biggest challenge for you? The, the, the biggest challenge was, it's obviously, it's tough at the beginning. No, it's tough at the beginning if you want to be, if you want to be an entrepreneur. You know, having been lucky enough that kind of one of the first things that uh, put money into um, that it worked, you know, when it well might not have done. And, you know, had it not, the world might turn out differently. But after that, uh, there were certainly a very large number of businesses that didn't work um, in the early days. And you put money into and well, they failed. In fact, the ones that failed quickly were not even the worst. The ones that failed slowly are really, really bad. Then you put a load of time, sunk cost, sunk time and everything, and you, and you struggle to give up on them. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's a very tough thing that nearly all entrepreneurs that I've spoken to go through. Some are lucky enough not to, but most do. You know, that's a, a tough period. You know, so, I mean, uh, for me, it was probably six no probably seven or eight years where yes you have some successes but you have a lot of failures too and you have some tough times um you know we were uh you know where at one point we had three um hospitality places we had a kind of a, two pubs and a bar and um we were trying to trade while bailiffs were trying to remove the furniture and um yeah, it was a tough day. And, but actually, after you go through that and you sort of beat off the bailiffs and do that stuff, then later in life, when you've got far more good people around you and better stuff, things don't seem that bad. And you can just reflect and say, yeah, well, today seems quite quite poor. But actually, compared to when I was kind of single-handedly trying to man the bar and, and make the bailiffs go away, this doesn't seem that hard. So you talked about if you want to be an entrepreneur. When did, you, when did that happen for you? It's a bit like kind of Andy Murray saying that uh, he hated losing more than he loved winning. Uh, it was, I, I didn't want to work for anybody else. And um, I think that after, I, th- I think it was just after the first night of the club and we'd actually tried to turn it into a more of a, a, a kind of official sort of business and we'd got a set up 
um, to recruit uh, to to recruit more customers to come to our hub. So we we went to what was then the kind of freshers' week, and you know most of the people with clubs and stuff, it was all relatively amateur, and we'd rented in because we were making money by that point some quite high tech video equipment, and this is high tech by the eighties standards. And so we had video equipment and we had, you know, pictures of clubs and cool stuff going on. So naturally, there you are in Freshers' Fair and everybody else is kind of invited to join the bridge club or the sewing club or whatever the hell it is. And we've got this high-tech stuff with music. And okay, so it was pretty cool. And we were recruiting a bunch of people. And um, anyway, in the evening, we thought we weren't going to leave it in, in, the, in the hall where it was. And these kind of university officials came along and said, sorry, you can't take that out. And they're like, well, hang on, this is a valuable kit. Why can't we take it out? And they just said, you can't, that's the rule. And there's a bizarre thing that that, that strange moment has stuck in my mind forever. And I thought, as far as possible, I'd never want to get my, allow myself to be in a position where people are determining you know, how my life or my business or whatever it is should be run. And And... You know, more or less, that's gone pretty well right up until um, lockdown on March 21st or mm. uh, 21st and 23rd. So, you know, that was a uh, that was a very big incentive for me, you know, independent freedom and actually being the person uh, person responsible for creating something good. You know, those that, that you, you have to you have to want to do that, you know, being an entrepreneur, I don't get maybe there are some people who are entrepreneurs because they want to make money but for me it's always been and, and people kind of poo-poo this and say well you would say that wouldn't you but actually the money's always the byproduct you know it's like i said about the restaurant if people are having a good time having having a good time you just know that you'll be making money and it's the same with any other uh products that i've been in, involved with if the product is good and the customers are saying yeah you, you know you're actually making a difference here. I like this one. Your thing, your your product, your service is better than somebody else's. The money is the byproduct of, of doing that thing. If you've solved a problem that was there to be solved, and that as a result the customer's happy, the money comes in. It's solving the problem, providing that service, doing that thing that gives you the satisfaction. So what what I'm hearing you say though it, it was not having others be in charge of your destiny and then you know and for you it was never about making the money it was about delivering a great product and knowing if you do that or a great service and doing that you, you know that the the bottom line will come. You you did talk a minute ago going actually one of the most painful things is investing in in something or, uh, and and not killing it quickly enough if you know it's not working. What would you say your biggest mistake? as a leader, as a businessman has been, and, and what have you learned? Oh, God, biggest mistake. Sorry, Phil, I didn't prepare that. But I think you know, there's a very long list of mistakes that I, I could dwell on. I think some of the biggest mistakes were to cling on to something that couldn't work. But having said that, the flip side is that we and I have also clung on to businesses and carried on and made them work and turned them round. So it, it's incredibly difficult to distinguish uh, between those two things. So you know that's a, it, it's really difficult. I mean, I think the biggest mistake that that um, I, I've made, you know, more than once, which is really embarrassing, you know, to do it more than once, is to actually 
get get involved and invest in things that you don't in the end understand and and can't control and fool yourself that that this thing is a great investment despite the fact you don't really know what's going on because you've been kind of sold on it one way or another we invested in a telecom business in georgia and i was saying like "Mm, how's the political risk uh, out there in georgia and my then partner at the time said, oh, it's all fine. These guys are all sort of Western educated. It's all great. So the political risk has sort of died down in there. You know, three weeks after we invested, Russia invaded Georgia. <laughs> and you realize that actually there's nothing I can do about that. I've invested in a business a long way away. And when people start invading a country you're invested in, that's it. It's game over. So, you know, there you go. You know, we lost our money and that was it. And you come back and say, what was I doing that for? Some some of the stories you've got are are fabulous to listen to. I, I, as a as a leader personally, you know what what causes the the red mist to come down. What what buttons have people pressed to to rattle your cage? The thing that really winds me up is people being, you know, dare I say it, just plain stupid. <laughs> It's often not big things, you know, sort of big thing. You know, there are big crises. You know, people out there, your team's trying to do its best. You do your best. You're doing things, making decisions. Stuff goes wrong. That's life, you know. Um, Shit happens. And you just have to get on with it. But there are other times when I find that, you know, somebody somewhere, not necessarily on my team, has done something that could never have had any chance of having anything other than a bad outcome. And that drives me, you know, still absolutely wild. And it might just be something really, you know, it might be something silly like a, a, a travel arrangement, whereas instead of thinking about it, you know, the person has applied no thought and therefore done something really dumb. Or it might be something more serious, but it's that kind of it. I, I'll give you an example, and this is an embarrassing occasion, but I think you'll appreciate it given what you, you do. We were trying to do at the time a, a massive deal that was extremely ambitious. We were trying to take, use a very small vehicle to buy a very big business. So we were trying to use a company that was valued at like 20 million to buy something that was worth six and a half billion, just to give you an idea. So it was quite ambitious. And uh, we were giving a, a press conference at eight o'clock in the morning on a whole you know, bunch of stuff that was really important, press conference, press, investors, etc. And uh, we were preparing all the stuff for the press conference, which meant telling them how the deal worked and stuff. And I was there with um, my number two, the finance director, who's also a good friend of mine. And I was there till two o'clock in the morning agreeing what we were going to be saying. At two o'clock in the morning, I said, look, guys, you know, I've got to be on form and up, you know, at eight o'clock. I think we're done uh, on this. And so I went home and went to bed, et cetera. So that's not really interesting to anybody. But eight o'clock the next morning. So we come to the, the you know, press conference and do stuff and do, do the initial um, uh, presentation. And then the questions start coming in. And one of our advisors had changed a key plank of the financial offering, had changed it and not told my finance director or me that they had changed it they just not told so you know third question or something comes in somebody looking at the you know detail of the presentation and a whole section has been changed and nobody has told the two people who are presenting 
And so we got we got absolutely crucified on this one subject that we actually had no knowledge. And it was something quite important. So for, for, for me as chief executive or chairman or whatever I was of the bidding vehicle and him as finance director to not know about it looked completely dumb. And it was completely dumb. And the truth is, it was a senior investment banker who should be nameless in the podcast <laughs> who had thought for some reason at about three o'clock in the morning after we'd parked that this didn't work and had just changed it and then neglected to tell us in the morning. And, you know, that kind of thing, you know, that that probably that didn't individually scupper that a bit, but it definitely hold it very badly below the waterline. And. It was a big thing, but it was also actually a little thing. And it was just an incredibly stupid thing to do, which could only really ever be likely to. It could never have a good outcome, and it could, however good the change was. And it could really only ever have a bad outcome because to change something without telling the people doing presenting is, is just, there's no other word for it, stupid. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I find unforgivable when people do like that. When people are just trying their best, taking a bit of risk, Using their brain, working hard, and they make a mistake. That's different. Good on them. Yeah. You know, they'll 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 learn. But rank, you know, I can, I can hear the frustration that. in your voice as you're describing that. You know, that's like 20 <laughs> years ago, Phil, and I'm still I'm feeling that thing. And of course, the question came at me. It was, it was yeah, the only the the humorous, slight humorous part of it. The, the question came at me, and uh, and I was like. Oh, I don't know what this is. Then I said, you know, Alan here from finance director will answer that. So I jumped this hospital pass at him, you know, thinking he did know the answer because, you know, he'd been informed of the change. And I looked at his face and I thought, oh, my God, you've no idea about this either. <laughs> so the poor guy, it was a double whammy. I not only got skewered myself, I gave a hospital pass to my number two. So it was a real all-round catastrophe but there you go good story um i, I know this is important to you both uh, on a professional basis and, and a personal one but what does high performance look like to you well, what does it look like i don't i, I think I've, I've i've told you um uh before phil but high performance me that going I, I listened to it was in a very small group that heard uh, max whitlock you know the triple was he triple gold medal winner yeah. at the olympics in yeah. gymnastics him give a talk about that. There's a guy that does high performance. You know, in business, are we high performing? Hopefully, we, you know, probably you have to perform at a high standard for, you know, perhaps longer than someone like that. But you want high performance, I think it's best described in, in sport. The dedication, the mind space that he was in, um, it, you know, was that's really, you know, what, what it looked like. And to give, one example, he was in such a high straight state of training. He said once he was actually in the Olympic Village in the kind of week lead up, the 300 metres that he would have to travel from his room to the restaurant, he would take a mobility scooter because he didn't want his muscles to learn a single movement that was not relevant to the routine he was going to be doing. And that's real high performance in business. You know, it's rare you absolutely have to uh, perform um, at your best. And I think, you know, business and sport are not the same. And anyone who thinks they are will be disappointed at some point, whether, whichever way they're trying to transfer their skills. But there are things you can learn from that. You know, you can look at Andy Murray where, or somebody equivalent, Djokovic or you know, other sports or, say, gymnasts, 
And you see, you know, when they're spending six hours a day committing to the most brutal training regimes ever, you realize that on those days when you think as a business person, you are trying pretty hard and are quite committed, you realize there's this whole range of additional commitment that you haven't really even uh, contemplated. And it's kind of encouraging because on those days where I think, Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm really working hard. I'm all in here. I kind of go back and I think about Whitlock or Andy Murray and I think, no, compared to those guys. I'm giving 10%. You know, come on, Hugh. You've got that whole other 90 to go. At least you can give another 10. Well, that's the nice segue into, and you, you used it in your descript, uh, your opening, and I said we'd come back to it, but but Apex 2100 in the French Alps. Do you just want to, what, you know, a brief more description around what that is, but more importantly, uh, what why you're doing it? Well, Apex, um, you know, it came about in a very random way in that probably, I can't remember how long ago now it, it was, but um, 10 plus years ago, when in the lead up to the uh, Vancouver Winter Olympics, um, I shouldn't remember that day, but I, I can't, I'm afraid. Um, the, what was then the British Snow Sports something or other federation went bust just in the few months leading up to this and left all the athletes unfunded even you know, to kind of make the trip for the Winter Olympics. And I just happened to bump into, you know, on, on, a, on a slope, the, uh, one of the, the trainers with a bunch of um, kids, actually, were not with the, the team that was going out there. Uh, you know, they were probably sort of 14-year-olds and they were really kids and I kind of just got chatting and said, how's it going? And he said, well, actually, it's a bit of a disaster at the moment because British, what was then British Snow Sport, um, has gone bust and our Olympic athletes stuffed and these kids, you know, we we haven't even got the money for kind of basic training and what have you. And so um, that was the first catalyst. And I, I started just a little bit of helping out uh, for a couple of years, purely financially. But I, I then I realized that uh, it wasn't, that was not going to get World Cup or, or Olympic medals for a British athletes. The approach, you know, the whole thing was uh, not fit for purpose, and that if if we were going to try and get um, medals, we had to take more of the approach that had been taken, for example, in cycling or in rowing or in rugby, and uh, we could mount a challenge for medals, Olympic and World Cup. But it would take the resource to do it. And it started kind of like that. And I decided, you know, I was passionate about winter sports and alpine sports. And I thought we could build something that gave these talented kids a chance. And, and by the way, you know, it's up and running now. And we've got 50 athletes, 55 athletes. It would have been like 75 this year if it hadn't been for COVID. These are not privileged kids and, you know, we give scholarships and, and all that. You know, so that's the objective. Within the next 10 years, well, it's nine now because we've known it we you know, we've got to have podiums, World Cup, Olympic in um, Alpine disciplines. And uh, it's turned from that idea into a socking great building um, in the Alps, as you know, in, in team facilities, uh, all of facilities you can imagine, I think, and a great training program, and above everything else, a really good academic program. So for those students, athletes who do not make it, and I think this is in a way the big difference, I think we probably offer 
the best education of any sports academy in in virtually any field in in the world it's amazing i'm very proud of it there's obviously it's a non-profit and you've enlisted the support of sir clive woodward who's director of sport of the academy yeah and he is properly awesome you know he's properly awesome he 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 really is the genuine is the genuine article the rugby world cup that he won he was obviously there's a team involved but if you want the architect of that victory it was Sir Clive, you know, and he's a proper geezer. Uh, he's, um, you know, he's somebody I admire. You know, he's like an Alec Ferguson or whatever. He and his skills are transferable. He's um, he's now doing that. Uh, he's obviously not the ski coach, but he's the performance director there. So what's next for you? What does the future hold? I think it's, it's difficult to say uh, at the moment, and that's relatively unusual. Um, for me, uh, I do think that um, you know what's happened over the last year or so, and um, I don't want to you know dwell on the, the bad things uh, about it. But I think you know, what's happened in the in the COVID crisis does uh, make one reflect on a few things about what further achievements you want to do and what the priorities are. You know, I have. A couple of things that I'm very, or two or three things I'm very you know, keen on at the moment. I'm very keen to see Apex succeed in the academy, and having spent time recently there, um, I'm really pleased with the way that's going. And I, 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 you know, I want to see that work. I'd like to see, you know, I want to see the medals, but you know, that's going to take time. We've got this, um, you know, the restaurant business that's. I am committed to. I think we can expand that a lot, and you know, I I want to do that. But we've got a very good team in in place, and uh, you know, we are looking for other things. I feel, you know, not as yes, uh, I suppose a responsibility, but not in a guilt-inducing way. I feel that when there's a crisis like that, people like myself who are lucky enough to have have had some success in business and made some money have a, almost a duty to get out there post this crisis, invest, start new businesses, employ more new people. And I definitely want to do that, plan to do that. Uh, Hugh, good on you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it up now just by saying thank you. What I've enjoyed about this, and it, it has been a different interview, interviewing you compared to some of the other uh, folks. Uh, and and it's you just hear the your mindset in terms of um, uh, how you go about things and that level of um, responsibility that you put on yourself to to make stuff happen um, um, uh, is uh, and with that responsibility obviously comes the accountability and uh, and that's uh, and that's what's enabled you to be uh, successful in doing what you're doing but also you know the 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 stories that you've made, in ter- or, uh, the stories that you've shared in terms of the mistakes you've made has been, uh, it's been enlightening today. So, Hugh, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. I'm sure there's lots of people that have thoroughly enjoyed this and we'll look forward to listening to it. Thanks, mate. OK, no worries at all. Leadership Confessions from Clarity Leadership. Email hello at clarityleadership.co.uk and subscribe to receive every episode.